Greetings from your Bible teacher as we all continue to shelter in place, which means that I will deliver this final lecture in the book of the prophet Ezekiel, which will coincide with the last lecture of the spring quarter from my home headquarters. So having dutifully made our way through the spring quarter, I look forward to greeting at least some of you in August for our summer series, A Month with Moses, the man and friend of God. I've heard from the parish in early June. They will take bookings for the use of McCready Hall, and of course we will be easily able to properly socially distance ourselves from one another in that venue. And then I'll look forward additionally to returning in September for the opening of our fall quarter. So effectively, we will have studied the entirety of the book of the prophet Ezekiel online. And uh, if we do get back together in September and folks say, well, gee, I didn't take advantage of the podcast series, it'll always be here on this site so that folks can go back and access it at their leisure. Today's lecture will probably not be as long as those previous to this, seven in number, because we'll be entering chapter 40, and there are only 48 chapters in the prophecy of Ezekiel. And some of these chapters are rather tedious, and we move through them at a rather brisk pace. But before I get too far along, let's pause for a word of prayer together. Gracious Father, we thank you for bringing us here online today to read and to study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God, our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit, he promised us to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. Grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Let's remind ourselves that there is a sort of uh, holy trinity of prophets uh, that we are engaging in this geopolitical time frame, which will lead up and will include the destruction of Jerusalem at the hand of the Babylonians in 586 BC. The Babylonians don't appear out of thin air. In fact, there are two recorded military incursions into the land in advance of the year 586, which were rather significant. First, in 605 BC, in order to extract payment, tribute from the kingdom of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar's armies came down and along with silver and gold also returned to Babylon with exiles of particular intellectual ability. Among those exiles, Daniel, the future prophet, and his three companions. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three that were in the fiery furnace. That's 605 BC. Again, the Babylonians sweep down out of the north. Modern-day Iraq is the location of ancient Babylon in the biblical period. And in 597 BC, again, exacting tribute in the form of gold and silver, 
uh, they also take back with them trained men of religious background, and among those was our prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, of course, formerly working as a priest serving in the temple of Jerusalem, finds himself among the exiles, and four years into that exile, he is commissioned a prophet and will deliver a series of 13 visions to the exiles, telling them uh, that what God said he was going to do to Judah because of their sins will in fact take place. He speaks about it, he acts it out, and it comes to pass. And then, of course, in 586 BC, the Babylonians come for the final time, destroy the city, having laid siege to it for two years, and then raise the city and burn the temple. And that temple will not be rebuilt, restored, and rededicated until the year 516 BC, a 70-year period of exile from access to that sacrificial site. All right, so that's our back story. And we're now back in the book of the prophet Ezekiel. And we're going to, in a moment, open chapter 40. But I'll remind you of the prophetic words of the prophet bringing chapter 38 to a conclusion. Verses 25 and following. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will restore the fortunes of Jacob, that is, eventually, and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name, which means that I will allow the temple, which was my home, to be rebuilt. And they shall, when that happens, forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me, when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. And when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, the nations not believing God could pull this one off, and when I do, they'll stand in awe. Then, in verse 28, they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations, among the Gentiles, and then gathered them back into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore, and I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, says the Lord. Again, a chapter that reveals hope that there will be a time of return, a time of in-gathering. Now, the final vision. The final vision of Ezekiel begins in chapter 40. In the 25th year of our exile, that is, our time away from the holy city of Jerusalem. At the beginning of the year, on the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year after the city was conquered, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me. He's still in God's employ, still a prophet, still speaking to the exiles, old and new. The Spirit, the hand of God, brought me in the visions of God into or back to the land of Israel, and in the vision set me down upon a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city opposite me. Now this would be an imagined location that we call the height of the Mount of Olives, because from the top of the Mount of Olives, and if you travel with me to Israel, and we are going in October, you too will see the same view as 
the prophet in this vision because you will look to the west and see the old city laid out magnificently before you. Now, when he brought me there, in verse 3, Behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a line of flax and a measuring reed in his hand, a yard stick, and he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes, and hear with your ears, and set your mind upon all that I shall show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you, and then you can declare all that you see to the house of Israel. Now behold, as I looked, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area. Remember, the wall had been breached, destroyed, had been uh, uh, taken apart by the Babylonians, but now, in the vision, it was restored. And the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand, six cubits long, a cubit, the average distance from the end of the average man's middle finger, his longest finger, and his elbow, a length of about 18 inches or so, times six, that's how long the measuring stick was, each being a cubit and a handbreadth in length. And he measured the thickness of the wall, one reed and the height, one reed, and then he went to the gateway facing east, going up its steps, and measured the threshold of the gate, one reed deep, and the side rooms, one reed long, and on and one reed broad, and the space between the side rooms, five cubits, and the threshold of the gate by the vestibule of the gate at the inner court, one reed. Now this is the way the next three chapters reveal that there will be a restored city of Jerusalem. Again, it's a measurement in the midst of a vision. And as I told you, it is quite tedious reading, much less teaching publicly. And you can see that coursing your way across chapter 40. We're still measuring everything that we see. In chapter 40, verse 48, then he brought me to the vestibule of the temple. And now we're within the temple area. And again, that is measured dutifully with painstaking accuracy. And that continues on through chapter 41 until we get to chapter 42. And we measure the holy chambers and the outer wall and then arrive finally in chapter 43. Now, the reason we are going to focus on chapter 43 is because by the time we get to chapter 43, everything that has been seen has been measured, and everything that had been destroyed has been restored. And so now everything is ready for God's return, right? Because in the book of the prophet Ezekiel, we remember that systematic departure of the city's spirit, God's spirit from the temple as it moved from the holy of holies to the holy place to the temple gates across the Kidron Valley and eventually over the top of the Kidron Valley and left Jerusalem over the height of the Mount of Olives. This vision is taking place on the height of the Mount of Olives. And so, again, the idea is that Spirit of God, which departed from the temple in advance of the Babylonians arising, that's Ezekiel's chapters 9, 10, and 11, 
will now return once everything is restored. And that's what chapter 43 is about. After all the measuring, in verse 1, he brought me to the gate, the gate facing the east, that is looking to the east, because that's where the Spirit of God had departed from west to east over the height of the Mount of Olives. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from where it had last been seen departing from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was like the vision which I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the vision which I had seen by the river Kebar, and I fell on my face, and as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So as the Spirit had departed in a very systematic way, holy of holies, holy place, temple, mount, gate, mount of olives, so too, in a very systematic way, the Spirit of God returns in the vision to re-inhabit his house, the temple. Now, while the man, in verse 6, was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me out of the temple, and the voice said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, and the place of the soles of my feet, where I dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their harlotry and by the dead bodies of their kings, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them. That's not going to happen anymore. Remember, harlotry or adultery means that you have taken up in a relational dynamic with a pagan god. And, and that's the sin that you've committed. You've placed other gods alongside your own. And so that will stop. That's what's referenced in verse 8 by the words, by setting their threshold, that is the threshold of the side altar to these pagan gods, by my threshold, and their doorposts that uh, you hang the doors and that you pass through on the way to idolic worship centers, uh, besides my door posts, with only a wall between them. They have, in the middle of verse 8, defiled my holy name by their abominations, which they have committed, and so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their idolatry and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. Again, a vision of hope. And you, son of man, in verse 10, Describe to the house of Israel, that is what you see in this vision. Describe to the house of Israel the temple and its appearance and plan that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. And if they are ashamed or sorry for all they have done, portray the temple, its arrangements, its exits and entrances, its whole form, and make known to them all the ordinances and all its laws, and write it down in their sight so that they may observe and perform all its laws and ordinances. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory around about the top of the mountain shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. So the temple is going to be restored. And by the way, it will be 
once Cyrus, a ruler, a leader, a general, a victorious military genius over the Babylonians from Persia, arrives on the scene and commissions Ezra to return 539 BC and begin the process of rebuilding and rededicating the temple. And that will be accomplished in 516 BC. Now, we follow along to chapter 44. In chapter 44 and verse 4 and following, then his guide brought me by the way of the north gate to the front of the temple. And I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord, and I was overwhelmed. I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I shall tell you concerning all the ordinances of the temple of the Lord and its laws. And mark well those who may be admitted to the temple and all those who are to be excluded from the sanctuary. And say to the rebellious house, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, let there be an end to all your abominations. Don't ever continue the practice of admitting foreigners, men uncircumcised in heart and flesh, to be in my sanctuary serving pagan gods alongside proper sacrificial and ordered worship. That can't continue. So, say to them, it has to stop. There needs to be an end to all your abominations, verse 7, in admitting foreigners and uncircumcised people in heart and flesh to be in my sanctuary, profaning it. When you offer to me my food, that is your offerings, the fat and the blood, you have broken my covenant in addition to all your abominations, and you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set foreigners to keep my charge in my sanctuary. Therefore, Number one rule, verse 9, no foreigner or uncircumcised in heart and flesh person of all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel shall ever enter my sanctuary. And we would read or add ever again. So that's the central focus of chapter 44. In chapter 45, we move throughout the holy district and then in the end of the chapter, remember the festivals of the Jewish faith community. We know them as Passover, spring, Pentecost, summer, and tabernacles in the fall. This uh, sort of ebb and flow of week-long celebrations uh, that require, if you're able-bodied, uh, that you make a pilgrimage to the holy city. And you do that in order to be present when sacrificial offerings are made at the temple. And to do that, you need a city and a temple to make pilgrimage to. And that's part of the vision. In the vision, all of this is going to be restored. Now, all of this takes us to chapter 47, probably the most important part of this final vision of the prophet Zechariah, which will connect us in just a moment so you can find your way there in advance to the last chapter in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 22. Now, after everything that's transpired in Ezekiel 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, and 46, the temple reestablished, God re-inhabiting the 
the, the excising of foreigners and uncircumcised pagans from any direct contact with the holy things. In chapter 47, then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water, in the vision now, was issuing from below the threshold of the temple. It was sort of pouring out from the temple from a source somehow miraculously maintained by God. And it's going to flow toward the east because the temple faced the east. If it's flowing toward the east, it's going to eventually make its way down to, as all water flowing from west to east, from the height of the Mount of Olives, would to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the lowest point on planet Earth, and water seeks the lowest place. And so it began to flow, and the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me round about on the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east, and the water was coming out on the south side. Well, Jerusalem as a city sits tilted from north to south. So the north part of the city then and now is higher in elevation than the southern part of the city. The southern gate of the city we call Jerusalem in the time of Jesus was also the location of the Dung, D-U-N-G, gate. It was the gate through which the city's refuse passed because gravity assisted uh, moving things from north to south. So again, that's why you stand now on the south and see the waters flowing toward an eventual end point, which is the super saline waters of the Dead Sea, where there is no life whatsoever. Now, going on eastward in verse 3, with a line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water. And now it was ankle deep. And again, he measured a thousand more and led me through the water. And it was knee deep. And again, he measured a thousand more and led me through the water. And now it was up to his thighs. And again, he measured a thousand more. And that water coursing now was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be traversed. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he led me back along the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw upon the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, The water flowing toward the eastern region and down into the Araba, which is the area we associate with Jericho. When it enters the stagnant waters of the Dead Sea, the waters of the Dead Sea will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature which swarms on the earth will live. And there will be so many fish for this water goes there. And the waters of the sea, the Dead Sea, become fresh so everything will live wherever the river goes. And you'll see, fishermen will stand beside the Dead Sea from Engedi to En Egliam, and it will be a place for spreading of nets. Its fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea, which is, of course, the Mediterranean. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt, because the swamps and the marshes are incredibly valuable, because salt 
is a tradable commodity and you need it to survive. And on the banks of both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fruit fresh every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. The fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So this is a vision of the end times. When God reaches down and restores all things and that which was brackish, saline, and dead will be restored to freshness so, so that the trees grow and produce fruit on its banks either side and the teeming swarms of fish can sustain populations. Now, keep your finger here and with me find your way to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation is also, from chapter 4 onward, a series of visions that are given to John, the youngest apostle. And when we look at those visions from chapters 4 through chapter 19, we make dutiful note of the fact that everything predicted in the vision before the events actually transpired came to pass with the attack on the city of Jerusalem by Rome, its destruction, and dismantling of the temple, just as Jesus predicted 40 years earlier. Do you see this building? I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another. They will all be torn down. And then you have chapters 20, 21 and 22. And it's very clear that these chapters have yet to be fulfilled. Even as I teach today, these chapters have yet to be fulfilled. We're anticipating one day that they will because every prophecy uttered by Jesus was fulfilled to the letter as detailed in chapters 4 through 19. And so since those prophecies were fulfilled, why would we doubt these? That's the argument that you would understand when you study the book of Revelation. Well, in Revelation chapter 22, again, which is predicting events at the end of time, John, our apostle and visionary, in verse 1 of chapter 22, says, Then he showed me the river of the water of life, a river that's giving life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, which, by the way, have taken the place of where the old temple in Jerusalem used to be situated. Now that is the throne of God and the Lamb, which is the throne of Jesus. And so it was flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, the old temple, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Again, I'm going to return just briefly to Ezekiel chapter 47. On the banks, verse 12, of the river, on both sides, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary, from the temple. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. John sees the same vision as Ezekiel. Again, now back to Revelation chapter 22. On either side of the river, the tree of life will be 
seen, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree, well, they're for the healing of the nations. So again, we make that direct connection to Ezekiel chapter 47 and verse 12. There shall be no more things, in verse 3, cursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall worship him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and night shall be no more. They need no lamp of or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Interesting. Remember, their name shall be on their foreheads, which means that they will be thinking like God. The mark of the beast in the book of Revelation is on your forehead or on your hands. You're required to think like a Roman and act like a Roman. So you don't take the mark of the beast. You refuse to think like a Roman, a pagan. You refuse to act like a Roman, and therefore you are saved. So this wonderful, wonderful vision of Ezekiel chapter 47 is repeated. We see it again in Revelation chapter 22. And then finally, to bring the book of the prophet Ezekiel to a conclusion, we dictate the new boundaries of the land, which, by the way, is also done in the book of Revelation. Because when we see in the book of Revelation the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, to tie, to describe its size, John says he, he does a quick measurement and realizes it's a square and each wall extends for 1,600 miles. That's halfway across the United States. Again, it's an exaggerative number, but the idea is that Jerusalem will be large enough to encompass everyone. And that's where God and Jesus will have their thrones. Well, we see that also. In Revelation chapter 47, we talk about geographic boundaries. And in chapter 48, tribal apportionments in the new land that we will return to after our exile. And all of this will be done once the city of Jerusalem has been restored. And then the last line in the book of the prophet Ezekiel chapter 48 verse 35. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits. No city like that existed in antiquity or even in our own day. A fantastically large city, as we will see also in the book of Revelation. And the name of the city henceforth shall be the Lord is there, or the Lord is always there, or the Lord will be there forever and ever. Amen. So there's a connection between the book of the prophet Ezekiel and his vision of the new Jerusalem and the same vision in subject given to John in Revelation. So that brings us to the end of the book of the prophet Ezekiel. You did great work following along with me and I want to thank you for taking the time to find and listen to these lectures. Again, this is number eight in a series of eight, so there won't be one next week. I'm taking June and July off, as I typically do. I do want to thank so many of you and your kind response to my request for financial support. It was overwhelming. And again, if you weren't aware, I did send out an email saying, well, since I'm losing my spring quarter revenue, if you can help me out, please do so. You can read about that in the newsletter. 
that I sent. You can always find the newsletters at ArizonaBibleClass.com under the newsletter tab. And uh, my wife and I have been blessed beyond a measure because so many of you said, you know, I want to help. I, I want to support. And, and by the way, many, many, many folks who had graduated from the Bible class years ago also stepped up. So this was a real time of uh, blessing for she and I. I want to thank you uh, if you participated. And I know you're supporting me because you're listening to these lectures. I do want to also encourage you uh, not to give up on this trip to Israel. It is a go. And Israel's opening uh, her borders in June for pilgrims to travel. Uh, they realize that this is going to be a slow process. It will be one that will be done prudently. Uh, but we're going to go. We've booked passage. The flights are, are secured. And we'll sort it all out as we go. You can find out all the information you would need to register for the trip. Again, at the ArizonaBibleClass.com website and you just follow the prompts on the travel opportunities tab. All right. Well, having said all of that, thank you for listening and never forget what a great student you are. Good day. Have a good couple of months and God bless.